Friends, we have two scripture passages to share this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. The first comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verses 14. Hear and listen how God is still speaking today. They treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well, all is well, they insist, when in fact nothing is well. That is the word of God for the people of God. We say together, thanks be to God. And then from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered these? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Again, that is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say together, thanks be to God. Will you please pray with me and for me? Holy Spirit, you are here. Holy Spirit, speak to us as a church community 
and speak the word each of us individually needs to hear. Holy Spirit, may all that I say point us toward greater union and intimacy with you, the lover of our souls. Amen. We just heard a story from Jesus about a man who was left broken, beaten, and bloody on the side of the road. He was dying. When we hear stories like this, it leads us to ask, who are we as a society currently leaving broken, beaten, and bloody on the side of the roads? Friends, we've heard a lot about racism the past year. And sadly, racism is seen as a political issue. And I acknowledge that, in part, it is. Because the word politic, way back in the Greek, literally means how we structure our life together and what we value. So there's the acknowledgement that it is, in part, a political issue. But even with that said, and even more sadly, it's more seen as a partisan issue where one person is right and the other is wrong. When that happens, it does not acknowledge that in our history as a country, both of our major political parties have failed us in numerous ways, including in dealing with racism. What I invite you to this morning is that we not see racism as a purely political issue, but as a spiritual one. As people who are following Jesus, we are called to be people of truth, even with those whom we care deeply about. And as a church community, we do care about each other. That's one of the reasons why I think y'all are still coming here. I care about you, and so many of you have shown me that you care about me. But I have a duty to God and to you to be truthful about an area of discipleship that is being neglected across our nation. I'm not going to speak perfectly today, but I am going to speak as truthfully, faithfully, and as lovingly as I can in this moment. And it would be very understandable if you are sitting there wondering, why are we talking about this now? This is potentially very divisive, even with tomorrow being the day we honor Dr. King. Here are a few hopefully helpful responses to that. One of Dr. King's most powerful written works is his letter from the Birmingham jail, which is something I try to read every year and would encourage you to read it as well. You can find it online just through a Google search. This letter was written to the people 
whom Dr. King found to be the most difficult hurdle to overcome in the movement for racial justice and equity. This letter was not written to the KKK. This letter was written to white, moderate clergy. From Dr. King's perspective, they were the biggest hurdle to overcome. Clergy who agreed with Dr. King's movement for the most part, they just didn't want him to cause too much trouble while doing it. They called Dr. King's remarks unwise, untimely, when clearly as we look back on it and the reason we remember him tomorrow is that his remarks were both wise and timely. So we are talking about racism in the church because the people who need to hear it most are white moderates like us and not the people who have explicit outright hate. That's the first reason I have felt called to speak to this. The second is that right now, in homes across our nation, there are people, the, the homes are filled with people who have given up hope that the church has a message worth listening to amidst the pain that they and their friends and family have experienced. The church has lost people because we have not given a voice to the reality of their pain that they experience and that their friends experience and their family. We need to realize that in the context of racial equity and justice, the church at times has been part of the problem and not the solution. The third reason, and frankly the most important reason, is because the sin of racism still plagues our nation. And that matters to Jesus Christ. And it is killing us spiritually, and it is killing people. So what do we do? When there's a problem, how do we go about solving it? To illustrate what I believe God is calling the church to do, I'd like to tell you a story. It comes from the popular spiritual memoir, Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller, a very popular book in a lot of uh, circles about 14 years ago or so, 15 years ago. And Don Miller tells about the time he was auditing a course at Reed College, a small private college in Portland, a place known for being very anti-religion. And he and a few of the other Christian students, who weren't that many, decided to build a confession booth during one of the biggest parties of the year after exams. Here's what they did. Drunk, high, and naked college students were running around, and Don and his friends had a tent in the middle of it all that read, Confession Booth. On the surface, it looks like they're trying to get drunk, 
high and sexually promiscuous college students to confess their sins. Good luck with that. Here's what actually happened. The Christians confessed to the Hanover anti-religious college students. Here's some of what they said. We confess that we have not been very loving. We have been bitter. And for that, we are sorry. We apologize for the Crusades. We apologize for the televangelists. We apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely. Don and his friends then asked the college students for their forgiveness and being selfish and misrepresenting Jesus on campus. Then they told these college students that Jesus loved them and the students forgave them. So let's summarize what happened there. Followers of Jesus confessed their sins to people who were allegedly against them and asked them for their forgiveness. In Don Miller's words, the important thing to do, the right thing to do, was to apologize for getting in the way of Jesus. The important thing to do, the right thing to do, was to apologize for getting in the way of Jesus. So I believe that actions like those and that type of mindset that is needed for the church in going forward in regard to racism. I believe we have fallen short in what God has called us to do in the world. And the first step to that is to confess and repent. For people of faith, that is our step toward the beloved community. So friends, here's my confession. I have made racist decisions in ministry, even when I was leading a black church. I made decisions that were not just biased and equitable, and I have learned. I have been impacted by racial bias, even though I was not aware of it. I have discovered that we can know the Bible, be committed to Jesus, and still hold racial bias and prejudice. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis says, the church dies when we pretend we don't know what we think. In other words, when we pretend that we aren't aware of our own sin, the church dies. For me, diving into the spiritual journey of dealing with racism has allowed me to see the truth that we are leaving wounded people on the side of the road and telling them all is well, all is well, when it is not well. And the truth is, when we disregard another person's suffering, 
that's sinful. Racism is sinful in all of its forms. And it keeps all of us, of all, across the racial spectrum, it keeps all of us from living into the whole and beautiful person God created us to be. Because we are called to carry each other's burdens. And when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt with them. Now, confession is generally practiced as a personal act between us and God. And generally, that is what I would encourage it to be. But scripture also shows us that it's corporate, which means something a whole group is called to do together. We see in books like Jeremiah and then Lamentations, where people are called to confess and lament as a community. Because ultimately, confession and repentance are acts stating that we believe change is possible. And in this case, confessing and repenting from racism are acts stating that we believe that our world can be free of racism. That God can create a world free of racism through willing participants. Confession is a response to grace. Please hear that. God, confession is a response to grace. God's grace, not God's judgment, is what convicts us and grace is what frees us from any shame when we do confess. And this isn't easy. But it is fruitful. And sometimes what I've seen is that we think that something, because it's hard, it must be bad for us. But there is a difference between entering into something challenging and entering into something that does damage to our souls. Entering into something challenging allows us to be led and empowered by grace. Entering into something that does damage to our souls leads us towards shame. So we shouldn't cheat the Holy Spirit out of growing us in new ways to become more honest disciples and more honest truth-tellers in the world. And we shouldn't avoid it just because it's hard. We can find grace in these holy discomforts. You can be uncomfortable with something and be in the presence of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit at the same time. For myself, as I have dived into the intersection of race, theology, and what God calls us to do, I have become increasingly grateful, grateful for the work God has done in my life. That God has set me free from my own bias and sin that I didn't even know I had. And I have the same hopes for all followers of Jesus. Jesus has become even more powerful in my daily walk as I have dived into this area of discipleship. Now, it's not easy. But the most beautiful gifts in life aren't easy. 
When we take these steps of confession and repentance that recognize we have fallen short, that we have not lived into our baptismal vows to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in all forms that present themselves, when we do those acts, that's when it becomes, I believe, more clear and we start to notice the bodies of our neighbors who are lying broken, beaten, and bloody on the side of the roads. Author Stephen Madsen writes this. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said Samaritan lives matter. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said children's lives matter. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said Gentile lives matter. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said Jewish lives matter. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said women's lives matter. Instead of saying all lives matter, Jesus said lepers' lives matter. Everybody Jesus met was always crucial to him. But he always pointed toward those who were excluded and sought to bring them toward the center. And the reality is that was not received well. Because the truth is, at no point in our human existence have all lives really mattered equally, anywhere. We have always, either consciously or unconsciously, excluded people. So therefore, as a follower of Jesus, I believe it is faithful to say that black lives matter. Now I understand that all movements are flawed and black lives matter is no exception because it's run by humans and all of us are flawed. I also understand that this movement carries significant political baggage. And sadly, we can confess even partisan baggage. So I fully understand that the people involved in the Black Lives Matter movement may have other political beliefs you cannot in good faith agree with. And you may be right for not agreeing with them. Any movement's members may have partisan political beliefs you do not agree with. But those beliefs are only part of who they are. And just like any of us wouldn't want our entire personhood overlooked or disregarded because somebody disagreed with one of our political beliefs, we should offer that same grace to others. You may not agree with some of their proposed solutions to racial injustice either, but we can't deny that there is a problem. Lives are being lost that are precious to Jesus. 
And as a matter of Christian love, we cannot keep walking by their broken, battered, and bloodied bodies, telling them all is well when it is not. Our neighbors are asking us if we are going to keep treating their deep wounds lightly. In other words, are we going to look at a giant gash and say a Band-Aid will fix it? Are we going to walk past those who are injured on the side of the road, or are we going to see them and treat them with human compassion? Do we recognize that they truly matter, that they are made in the image of God, and that we say that, recognize that, as a follower of Jesus and not because of any partisan beliefs? We are called to Jesus and not partisan beliefs. Now, a understandable and valid question with this comes, what about personal responsibility? I acknowledge that personal responsibility is an important part of following Jesus. And as Methodists, we believe we are responsible to respond to the grace that God has given us, and God has given us responsibilities in the world. And I'd also invite you to think about responsibility in this way. Here's what Dr. King himself said about the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite who did not help the injured man may have asked themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Good Samaritan instead asked, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him if I don't help? The Samaritan looked at this injured, beaten man and said, this life matters. And that is what the Black Lives Matter is pleading for us to see. This is the, a purity of the heart that we need. Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart, and purity of heart is found in compassion, even when we don't understand the situation or why it happened. The Black Lives Matter movement isn't saying Black Lives Matter more, and certainly not that they alone matter. They are saying we are hurting and have been for a long time. Please listen to us. Affirm our pain, our human dignity, because we are all equal under the headship of God. If you break your arm and you go to the hospital looking for treatment and the doctor tells you, don't worry, all bones matter. What he's saying is true, or she. All bones do matter, but that doesn't give you the treatment you need in that moment. 
Friends, in my own journey of following Jesus, I have found that Jesus isn't just capable of transforming my life. He is capable of transforming the whole world. Racism is, racism is not divine inevitability to always exist. It can be eradicated through faith-driven blood, sweat, and tears. And I believe that is part of the faithful work Jesus has called us to do in this time. Friends, I acknowledge this message may have felt like you were drinking from a water, water hose. <laughs> it may have brought up feelings of anger, shame, or just wanting to walk away. Wherever you're at, it hasn't changed that I care about you as your pastor. Pastors have a variety of roles to equip people in their spiritual life, to care for people, and to challenge so that we can grow. My desire isn't to turn any of us into activists. My desire is to make us prayerfully consider whose body we are leaving wounded on the side of the road. Our lives were bought with a price. And that means we are not allowed to look past wounded people and to not speak truthfully about the reality frankly, would be sinful for me as a pastor to overlook that. We grow through challenging each other, and in order for our, our neighbors to experience a more abundant life, and in order for us to experience that more abundant life too, we have to be challenged. We are called to examine ourselves as people of faith, and this is part of the work in examining our, ourselves. And more often than not, it needs to be done in community. Now, in this whole journey of racism and all that, all that, none of us are in exactly the same place. But we are still the church that does and will care for each other. I will care for you whether you think this is the worst or the best sermon you have ever heard. The Christian journey is about spreading hope and love, but we cannot fully spread that hope and love unless we recognize the reality of our sin and the reality that we can be free from that sin as well. Our world can be free in that beloved community that Dr. King envisioned, one where there is no poverty, no hunger. That is possible. And as people of faith, we are called to live into that to take steps toward that. So let's do our part and recognize that as hard as it may appear, friends, there is always grace on the other side. Amen.